0: Radio Rounds, the podcast series from St. Louis Children's Hospital. Here's Melanie Cole. An estimated one and a half to two million children are abused or neglected in the United States each year. Approximately 3,000 children die each year at the hands of a caretaker. My guest today is Dr. Adriana Jamis. She's a Washington University child abuse pediatrician at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jameis. So, Tell us a little bit about the prevalence and statistics of child abuse in this country.
1: Thank you, Melanie. Yes, far too many children suffer from child maltreatment. The National Survey of Children's Exposure to Violence estimated that one in four children have experienced abuse or neglect at some point in their lives, and one in seven children experienced maltreatment in the last year. As you said, many children die each year as a consequence of maltreatment. But thankfully, pediatricians can act in meaningful ways to protect children from abuse.
0: So are there some risk factors, some certain things you'd like to identify that that would let a pediatrician know that maybe this is a child who's at higher risk of being abused?
1: Yes, there are many risk factors that uh, we see on a regular basis. So although child physical abuse is seen across all societal, cultural, racial, and socioeconomic spectrums, there are known risk factors, and those include poverty, family violence, social isolation, a young age, both of the child and of the parent or caretaker. Children with disabilities and with chronic illness are just uh, a few of them. There is one known risk factor that pediatric providers can actively do something to modify, and that is correcting caregiver's inappropriate developmental expectations of young children. And by that, I mean, and as an example, a parent who believes that, say, their 18-month-old daughter could be successfully potty trained will feel significant frustration when their best efforts are unsuccessful and they will begin to wrongly attribute developmentally expected potty accidents to a child's willful disobedience. That dynamic is unfortunately primed for physical abuse. So a pediatrician has an opportunity by a thorough attention to and then discussion of appropriate developmental expectations to ease the parenting stress and can lead to that can lead to physically abusive situations.
0: Dr. Jamis, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a policy report for clinicians on, on being able to identify some of the warning signs of child abuse. Please speak to that a little bit.
1: Yes, I, I always use uh, the AAP's policy. Um, the one, um, 2009 one was, was published, and I like that one because it really gives pediatricians some guidance in in concrete steps. So what they stated was that the ability to detect and properly diagnose physical abuse is dependent on a clinician's ability to do three things, and I'd like to talk about each of those. The first is recognizing suspicious injuries. The most um, common, the earliest, and the easily recognizable finding of child physical abuse is a bruise. Now, because pediatricians see active, healthy children with mild bruising so often, there's a tendency to just dismiss all mild bruising as normal or an expected consequence of play or normal childhood accidents, like falling from the bed or playing at, or, and falling at the playground. But that isn't the correct way to think about bruising. So by understanding the characteristics of normal expected bruising, and then recognizing when a bruise doesn't fit that pattern, providers can identify children who require additional evaluation, both for potential medical disease and for child maltreatment. So normal bruises are typically found on children who have attained the skill of upright mobility, meaning like they're cruising, they're moving, they're independently walking. Those children, once they've attained that skill, they generally have bruises that are few in number, have kind of an indistinct shape, and are on the front of the body, on a bony prominence, like a forehead or the shin. Bruises that are on infants that aren't mobile, that are on soft parts of the body, like the cheek, the ear, the neck or abdomen of the thigh, the back of the body are numerous, are clustered together, have a distinct pattern those bruises should prompt an evaluation because those are most frequently associated with inflicted trauma. So even one small bruise on the cheek of a four-month-old should be considered a warning sign of inflicted trauma. The second step is to do an appropriate medical evaluation. Now, when there's a credible concern for physical abuse, maybe it's because there was a history of abuse that was provided by a parent or an investigator, or there's a physical finding that the provider sees, or there's a diagnosis of physical abuse in a sibling, those children should be evaluated by a medical provider with at least a comprehensive physical exam and history. Every inch of the skin needs to be visualized with particular attention to body parts that are frequently missed, we frequently see injuries missed like behind the ear, in the mouth, or on the genitals. But then there are some children who will require additional evaluation for injury that's occult. And by occult, I mean it can't be detected by a history and physical alone. So for example, very young children, primarily under six months of age, they require blood work like a CBC, a CMP, and a, a urinalysis to evaluate for internal injury like liver and kidney injury. They also need a skeletal survey to detect occult fractures, like rib fractures and what we call classic metaphyseal fractures, fractures at the ends of the long bones. And then many of them will also need brain imaging to detect signs associated with abusive head trauma, like subdural hematoma. But then as the child gets older and more verbal, the yield of those screening tests decreases, and we can more safely rely on history and physical exam. So I would really encourage providers to seek consultation with the child abuse team here at Children's Hospital when they're deciding what screening tests are indicated. And Dr. Condis and I, my partner, Dr. Condis, were always available for such such consultations via Children's Direct. Now, the third step, um, that is where we just need to use all of our pediatric experience and just put it all together. We need to ask, does this fit? Does the history match the developmental capabilities of the child? Do the physical findings match that history? Is there a finding that is explained by a a diagnosable medical disease? And then we need to acknowledge that when it doesn't all fit together, that we need to consider that abuse is the most likely diagnosis, and then we need to take appropriate steps.
0: And if this is something that's identified by the pediatrician, what is their next step and and what's required for mandating reporting? Are there there some... Deterrence to this reporting system that might keep a pediatrician from reporting it accurately?
1: Yes, that's a great question, Melanie. So all pediatric providers are considered mandated reporters in every state. But in Missouri, it means that if we have a reasonable cause to suspect that a child has been or will be a victim of child maltreatment, we must make a report to Missouri Children's Division. Now, that language might seem a little vague, But it is written that way purposefully, and that's the reason is because no one should feel that their suspicion has to be confirmed or proven prior to making a hotline. The investigation of that suspicion is not the responsibility of the reporter. So each provider has a personal responsibility to ensure that a report is made properly. That responsibility can't be delegated or transferred to someone else. There are certain allowances made, like for example, here at the hospital, we know that one medical team can designate one person to make the report on behalf of the entire team, and pediatricians in, um, in practice or in a private practice or in a group practice can also utilize that allowance, that one person can make that hotline report, but then each man and reporter should take the steps to ensure that that hotline was made correctly. Now, you asked about deterrence, and I see that frequently, and that is pediatricians or providers feel a lot of discomfort and frustration with making a hotline report. So, and that's frequently because they don't see or aren't part of the investigation or the protection of the abused child, and they feel really disconnected from the process. So here at Children's Hospital, when I see a case, I, when I'm involved... When the initial reporter is a medical provider or like a clinic staff member, like the receptionist, um, or um, even, even a housekeeping staff member who made that report, I will frequently reach out to that person um, who made the report to discuss the case. And many times providers tell me that they were very... Um, they questioned whether or not they should make their report. They were feeling very insecure. They, they really um, didn't, didn't know how to address it, and um, they really struggled with that decision to make the report. Now, many, many times I've been able to very honestly tell them that I believe their decision to make that report saved that child's life truly save that child's life by making that hotline. And so it only takes one case like that to really understand the importance of mandated reporting um, and encourage and support clinicians in their duty and their, and their responsibility to make that hotline. Now, if a provider ever feels disconnected from that process or the outcome of a hotline, I really encourage them to call talk directly to Children's Division, the investigator, or the investigator supervisor. Um, Or if we at Children's Hospital, the Child Protection Program here is involved, to please reach out to us because we will make sure that we connect them to that process.
0: And what does your Child Abuse Protection Program offer these patients? So the Child
1: Protection Program at St. Louis Children's Hospital is a multidisciplinary team. So we, uh, our team includes physicians who are child abuse pediatricians, myself and Dr. Condes. We also have a group of nurse practitioners who both do care in our clinic on an outpatient basis and see patients in the emergency room when it's required. We have support staff, and then we have an excellent team of social workers who work very closely and are very knowledgeable about the child protection system in Missouri and in Illinois, since so many of our patients um, are also from Illinois. And our program Becomes, uh, becomes involved when any person here at the, ch- at the hospital requests us to be involved, and that includes primary care doctors or people outside of our system. If they call and they say that they're concerned about a particular child, we will address it as a team. And our team frequently does inpatient consultations but also outpatient consultations, and then we'll also can do medical record reviews.
0: And in summary, Dr. Ajameis, Tell us what you would like pediatricians to know about identifying physical abuse in their pediatric patients. What do you want them to know about referring?
1: I want them to know that they need to consistently think of abuse as a possibility. Not that I want them to think the poor things about their patients or, or to only uh, to not believe um, families when they come in with accidental um, injuries, but they need to constantly think of the possibility and keep their eyes open for those signs. And then once they see that, to really reach out and get support that is available to them to um, best care for that child in that situation. Many times that means just calling us and they can always call us through Children's Direct. Dr. Condis or myself are on call 24-7 and we'll always be able to offer support and assistance if they feel that a patient of theirs is being somehow maltreated or abused.
0: And what can a pediatrician expect from your team after referring a patient to you?
1: So they should expect that we will we'll reach out to them and talk to them about about the case. There are times that um, a family sometimes doesn't want a lot of information um, provided, but we always do reach out to our referring uh, physician's Sometimes they even know more information than we do um, because they're close to the family and the family may feel uh, safer and more comfortable talking to them. So we will always reach out to them. We will let them know what's happening. And if for some reason they haven't heard from us, to please call us and we'd be happy to discuss their case.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today. It's really so heartbreaking, but such important information. Thank you, Dr. Ajamas, for being with us. And a physician can refer a patient by calling Children's Direct Physician Access Line at 1-800-678-HELP. That's 1-800-678-4357. You're listening to Radio Rounds with St. Louis Children's Hospital. For more information on resources available at St. Louis Children's Hospital, you can go to stlouischildrens.org. That's stlouischildrens.org.